up until his resurrection. Uh, we know he stayed another 40 days after his passion before he went back to heaven. But we're thinking about the Sunday before his crucifixion until the Sunday when he was raised from the dead. And uh, we don't know how far we'll get. We'll just stop at the proper time. And uh, just notice the last week of Jesus' life here upon the earth before his crucifixion, his shed blood for our salvation. We'll start with Matthew 21. And we notice that and I'm going to use sort of a chronological approach to his life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't always tell us about everything. There were a few things that all four of them told us about, like the feeding of the 5,000. But there were a number of things where Matthew may have been the only one who told us. Maybe Mark and Luke told us about something. But we're going to try to follow a chronological order. Matthew sometimes grouped his teachings together by topics and not necessarily chronologically. And you'll notice that when I kind of jump here and there when we're looking at Matthew to begin with. The last week, the holy week of Jesus. He has, with his 12 disciples, come to Bethany on uh, the day or the night before the Sabbath began. Rested on that day in Bethany. And then that night after the Sabbath was over, they had a meal. They had a, we might call it a gratitude dinner. It was in the home of Simon the leper. Now we're not told anything else about Simon, but what is here, and he was a leper. Evidently healed because they wouldn't have been meeting and eating in his home if he still had leprosy. So we assume that Jesus healed him. It's possible that maybe one of the 12 on their missions out had healed him, but he had been healed by the Lord. And so as Jesus comes back to Bethany, he has a meal for them. And not only is there Simon there, but there is also Lazarus, who only some days or a few weeks before had been raised from the dead, and he lived in Bethany. And so they're both present as they come together. This is the time when Mary Lazarus' sister takes ointment and anoints the Lord in preparation for his death. That was on the first day of the week, that is after sundown. So we're going to go from Sunday to Sunday as we think of the calendar today. Matthew begins by saying, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and came unto Bethphage, under the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village that is over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man or any one say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. Now this has come to pass that it might be fulfilled which was spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt that the foal of an ass. Well, let's pause just a moment. Jesus and the twelve leave Bethany. Bethany is less than two miles away from Jerusalem. Two routes. They could take the road that uh, kind of goes around the mountain. It's more level. 
or they just climb over the mountain and come down that way. And in this case, he's climbing over the mountain. And beyond Bethany and before they reach Jerusalem, there is Bethphagia. No one knows today where that was, but it has to be confined to a part of Mount Olives between Bethany and Jerusalem. But that was where the ass and her coat were tied up. So Jesus sends two of his disciples, go and bring them here. Now Jesus has in mind making a, a more of a dramatic entrance into Jerusalem than he has made before. We notice that when he does finally get there, he's being followed by a multitude of people. And there's a multitude of people coming out of Jerusalem to meet him. So here Jesus is really making an approach uh, with a lot of folk. Those who came out of Jerusalem were some who had gone early. Whenever they were preparing for a Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacle, and they had any reason to need cleansing spiritually and ceremonially, they would go early. Maybe they had touched somebody that was dead un unavoidably, or someone who was unclean, and that would make them unclean. And so to partake of the Passover, they would go and go through the ceremonial necessary to be cleansed. And so there were a number of people already in Jerusalem because the Passover is going to be a little while later. It's going to be the next Thursday night and Friday. And here it is, Sunday. So as they make their way, they're met by a lot of people. Jesus says, we're going to fulfill two of the many prophecies of the Old Testament. The first part of it is taken from Isaiah 62 and verse 11. The latter part is taken from Zechariah 9 and 9. And it says, Tell ye the daughter of Zion. That's from Isaiah. Zion is another term that's used for Jerusalem. Another name. So tell the citizens in Jerusalem or Zion, The king is coming. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Let's turn back to Zechariah, the next to last book in the Old Testament, chapter 9 and verse 9. Zechariah had much to say about Christ. Like Isaiah, he could be referred to as the Messianic prophet. And here's what we read from Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Notice Zion and Jerusalem together. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. So it's an announcement of the king's coming. He is just... And having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, even upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So here is announced the coming of the king. Now Jesus isn't going to be the king officially until he goes back to heaven, sits down at the right hand of God. That's going to be about 55 more days before he's the king, but he's, he's setting in motion the fulfillment of these prophecies. And there were a number in the Old Testament about a king, a messiah, the son of David, that was going to come and reign over God's people. 
And God had made a covenant with David when he was a king. He wanted to build a temple. God said, no, I'm afraid not, David. It's good that the thought was in your mind, but you were a man of blood, war, so we're going to let your son Solomon, a man of peace, build my temple. But because you wanted to build a house for me, I'm going to return the, uh, what we call it, well, I'll say blessing, and build your house, not out of bricks, not out of mortar, wood, and so forth, but he meant his, his family. The throne of David went through all of the descendants of David until it reached Jesus, who is referred to here and elsewhere as the son of David. So God said, now, David, each descendant of you is going to sit upon my throne, your throne. And it's called both the throne of God, the throne of Jehovah, the throne of David. But if any of these descendants are disobedient, they're going to suffer the consequence. You find this in uh, Psalm 89 as well as in 2 Samuel 7. And we find in history that that's what happened. There were descendants, well, like Solomon. He became an idolater. He encouraged even his wives and others to do the same. The division took place. That was one problem. God brought upon them because of their disobedience. Then after a while, because they had become so bad, the ten northern tribes of Israel were carried off into Assyrian captivity. Nobody sat upon the throne, well, uh, excuse me, on David's throne until Babylon came and carried off Jeconiah and Zedekiah, the last kings. And after that, they were always under the rule of some Gentile. There were the Assyrians, there were the Babylonians, there were the Medo-Persians, and then there were the Romans at the time of Jesus. Nobody was sitting upon David's throne until Jesus came. And now here he's coming in preparation for that very thing. Here is the king that's coming. He's coming under the meek and riding upon an ass. Meek, another translation says gentle or humble. That's describing the king. Not only his character, but his reign was to be one of meekness and humility. Now, riding upon an ass to us today would sound very humble. And I think that's what he's making the point here. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 20, um, 11, 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest on your soul. So he's inviting people to come, and he's saying, I am meek, I'm lowly in heart, and that's what the prophet here is saying that he would be riding upon this colt of a donkey. Probably his feet were dragging as he went along because they're small, are they not? I remember when we were visiting in Barcelona, Spain one time. And as we were driving into Barcelona, we noticed there were people along the wayside and there were police holding the people back. And I thought, well, these people know we were coming today. But then uh, we found out it wasn't, they weren't looking for us. So we had to pull over and park. And after a while, it took a while to wait, the king of Spain, K 
came in his motorcade. There were a lot of military people there. There were a number of big limousines, these big, long, black things. And there he was. He wasn't riding a donkey. The king of Israel, Jesus Christ, came into the capital, Jerusalem, riding a donkey. The colt, the foal. And yet the people were shouting and they were crying out. Those that followed him and those that met him coming out of Jerusalem. And it was uh, quite an occasion. We noticed that the people put their garments upon both of these animals so he could ride upon it. Others put them on the path that he was going to follow. Some of them cut palm branches down and put those in the path as well. Now palm branches are used various places in the Bible. They're, they're symbolic. They're significant. For example, Isaiah <clears throat> refers to the leaders of God's people with these branches, palm branches. Every year they had the Feast of Tabernacles, be about uh, October. And they were to go out and they were to cut branches. And with these branches, they were to build booths in which they were to live for seven days. And also the branches were to be used in rejoicing before God, having delivered them out of Egypt. That was the significance of that festival. Also, when the temple was recaptured during the time of Simon Maccabeus from the Syrians, uh, they, they rejoiced and they used branches in their rejoicing. And then one other thing we noticed was Revelation 7 and 9. It tells us that branches were to be symbolic. It was a token of victory for those who had overcome. We think about in the Bible overcoming this life, living a faithful life. Jesus said, be thou faithful unto death and I'll give thee a crown of life. And so this is describing those who were faithful and had overcome this life and its temptations being faithful to the Lord. And so that's used there as a symbol, a token of victory. And so the branches were symbolic of rejoicing and of triumph. And so they cry out various things. They cry out, Hosanna. Well, Hosanna means salvation. You know, save me, save you, or whatever. But salvation is generally the word. So when we think about Hosanna, or we sing songs that have Hosanna, we're thinking about salvation. And that's what they were thinking about when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. Now I would imagine that they were thinking about more of a political salvation and deliverance from Rome than they were from the Lord dying on the cross, shedding his blood to redeem them from their sins. They no doubt were expecting some political movement following is coming into Jerusalem. All of these people crying out the king, the son of David. Oh, they had a number of things that they cried out. Matthew said they said this and that, and Luke said this and that, and Mark. But they said so many things. It doesn't mean there was any error because each of Matthew, Mark, and John didn't mention everything. But they complimented one another. That's one of the things about studying these four accounts of the gospel. They complement one another. So they sang out, Hosanna, salvation, calling the son of David, which is a term meaning the Messiah, 
called him king, not in Matthew, but over in Mark, in Luke. Blessed is the kingdom that cometh in the name of the Lord. So they saw the king, they saw the kingdom, and they were crying out these things to the Lord as he came that way. Coming down the Mount of Olives, or Olivet, it was higher than Jerusalem. We're told that you could look over there and see the nearest part of Jerusalem, you were about 200 feet above. And the farthest part, you were still 100 feet above. There was a panoramic view that Jesus had of Jerusalem as he approached it. And as he thought about their acceptance, receptiveness, and their rejection of Jesus. That comes to his mind. Let me turn now over to Luke 19. Following the chronological order. In verse 41 through 44, And when he drew nigh, he saw the city and wept over it. And we're told the word for wept was to sob. It was to wail audibly. They could see and they could hear him crying over the city that was going to reject him. So far many had already rejected him, but nailing him to the cross. Not just him, but the fact that he represented God and is God. They didn't want him. They don't have anything to do with him. And so he wept over Jerusalem, saying, If thou hadst known in this day, even thou, the things which belong unto peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Why was it hid? Did the Lord hide something? No. It's very obvious. Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies that the Messiah was to have. If you go back through all the Old Testament prophecies, he fulfilled them one after another. You remember he said, I think not that I, or say not that I came to destroy the law. I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Matthew 5, 17. And he did. And yet they could not see Jesus, the Messiah. That caused him to weep, to wail. He came to save them. They were more or less saying, we don't want to be saved by you. I mean, why? We don't need salvation. And he wept. Verse 43. For the day shall come upon thee when thine enemies shall cast up a bank about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall dash thee to the ground and thy children within thee, they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. We've observed in our Bible class recently that the word visit and visitation is used throughout the Old and New Testament. It could refer either to a blessing, to grace, or to punishment to a curse. And I think here he's talking about the visitation of grace. Jesus was coming to bless them 
they didn't recognize him. They didn't accept him. They rejected him and they nailed him to the cross. And that's why he's weeping. And he's talking about when the Roman army was going to come. They were going to be God's instrument that would destroy Jerusalem and the temple. He talks about the, uh, Jerusalem as more or less the mother and her children were the citizens therein. The people who live there are the ones he's addressing here. And so when Rome comes with their army, well, they sort of, uh, this is Titus, the general, the leader, he sort of let them fight it out in, within their own city. They were this group against this group, fighting one another, killing one another in Jerusalem. But finally, when it got so bad, Titus says, that's it. And they destroyed the city. There were about 90,000, I think, who were killed, 110,000 taken off as slaves to other nations. That didn't have to happen. But they didn't, their minds were closed. They weren't receptive to Jesus. And really, that's what happens in every generation, every century. There are those people who are not open to the Lord. When we read the sermon on, uh, not the sermon, the parable of the sower, of the four types, he says there's just one that's pleasing to God. The people who won't hear, their minds are closed, the devil snatches the word away. He doesn't snatch the word away until after they've rejected it, though. They're given an opportunity, they hear the word, and then they don't act. Then he tells about those who, on the rocky soil, don't have any depth, but they receive it, and receive it with joy. They become a disciple of the Lord, or the church, a Christian. But it doesn't last long. Times of tribulation, persecution come along, and they're away. They're off, back in the world. And then the third type of those in the thorny ground. They allow the thorns to continue to grow as they have received the gospel. They've heard the word. They've obeyed it. But there's too much competition in their life. There are the riches. There are the pleasures. The anxieties. And all of those are working against them. And he's talking to you and me now. We cannot be receptive when we allow these other things, these material things, these things from the outside to choke us, to keep us from growing. We can hear the word, we can study it, we can read it. What are we going to do with it? Well, it depends upon my heart and upon your heart. Jesus wants to save us. We'll study a little later. On the Thursday, he has the Passover. Friday, he's crucified. This is Sunday. Friday of that week, he's crucified. Because people did not have open hearts to receive. We all want to go to heaven. Jesus has made it possible. He's, by the grace of God, tasted of death for every person. For you and for me and for everybody else. It's up to us, though, to accept his his grace, his, his offer, his death. We're going to sing a song of invitation. If there 
Is anyone who has not completed your obedience to the gospel? Oh, you believe Jesus is the Son of God, but you need to manifest that. You need to confess it before men and women. You need to change your life, which we call repentance. Be buried with him in baptism for the remission of your sins so that you can have his blood to forgive you of all of your past sins. And he's promised to do that. And he will. If you're subject to the gospel, won't you come as together we stand and sing?